Matthew 5, um, 43 to 48. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our second reading for this afternoon is from James chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ should not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Um, and so the kids are now going to go out to Inner West Kids with Laura and Letitia. And as they go, let me pray for our entire family. Father, we are here to worship you, to be shaped by your word, to have our, the gaze of our hearts and our minds and our eyes fixated upon Jesus. And so I pray that you would um, help us to see Jesus as he truly is, to love him, and to be convicted by your spirit of where we need to be convicted. We pray for our kids, that they would grow to know and love you, that you would be at work even in their early years of life, to be revealing yourself as good and gracious and glorious to them too. We pray your blessing over Laura and Letitia as they disciple the kids and share from your word with them. 
and we ask for all of us that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to hear your voice and to do what you've asked us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we live in a world where the battle for equality and equity, that battle is raging, isn't it? It dominates so much of um, the news, so much of our news feeds is filled with this narrative of social progress. It's even ingrained within our own Aussie culture, you know, that whole idea of a fair go, something that... Um, many of us have taken up and even been discipled in. You know, as Aussies, we have this sort of strange affinity with um, the underdogs and, and the battlers. And as Christians, we wholeheartedly affirm that God is the God of justice. You can't read the Bible and not see that God cares for the poor and the weak and the marginalized. And the biblical story itself is actually bookended by this vision of a world where everything and everyone is flourishing, irrespective of where they've come from or what they look like, because they are face to face and reconciled with God. But in the everyday stuff of our lives, we spend so much of it trying to find our place in a world that is built around systems and structures and hierarchies, be it within our own relationships or neighborhoods or workplaces. See, earlier in James, um, in chapter one, we're told that the goal of the Christian life is to grow into maturity, into completeness, this kind of single-mindedness towards God as we locate the sum total of our lives in Him. Jesus, in our reading this afternoon, put it this way. The goal is to be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. See, this kind of maturity, this perfection, um, Jesus and James are talking about a consistency, a unity between our inner motives and desires and our outward external actions. And this is what the flourishing or blessed life looks like. And even if you're not a Christian. I'm sure this kind of integrity is something you want to typify your own life, right? And so our reading from James today points us to one of the most significant threats to a flourishing life of integrity, the threat of favoritism, or to put it another way, discrimination. Um, and so this afternoon, we'll just take some time to look at three points. Uh, firstly, why we show favoritism, Secondly, um, why favoritism is problematic. And finally, how mercy triumphs over judgment. Why we show favoritism, why it's problematic, and how mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's start by looking at ourselves, shall we? Why do we play favorites? Well, James is direct from the very moment that he opens up this portion of teaching. Favoritism, he says, is incompatible with faith in Jesus. And as we work through more of James together as a church family, we'll see that James is the type of guy who doesn't really pull any punches. 
See, favoritism in his eyes is an ever-present, imminent threat to the Christian life and to the Christian community. So again, we've got to ask, why do we play favorites? And James begins by putting forward a hypothetical. Suppose a rich person walks into your gathering and a poor person on the same day. The rich person is looked upon with favor, a fuss is made over them, um, and they're given a seat of honor. But the poor person is looked upon with scorn, and they're either, from what James says, not given a place to sit at all, or given a humiliating place to sit. But here's where James lands a punch to the gut, in verse 6. But you, he says, have dishonored the poor. You see, he wasn't just speaking in hypotheticals. This is happening in the communities that James is writing to. And it's important for us as hearers and readers today to remember that the people that James was addressing, his audience, were mostly poor, servant-class people who were barely making ends meet, who were living in a world driven by honor and shame. I wonder if 2,000 years later, the way we relate to one another hasn't changed so much at all. And for James's audience, to be associated with those whose society honors means that you might also have the chance of being elevated to greater honor. But aligning yourself with the poor, the despicable, well, that was a sure way of ruining your reputation. Think of the critiques against Jesus' own ministry. Oh, you align yourself with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. Or if you knew the kind of woman she was, you wouldn't let her touch you. And so we see this dynamic at work in James's language. Look with me to verse 1. You see, the word for favoritism in the Greek literally means to receive the face. This is, in the truest sense, judging a book by its cover. As we go down to verse 3, the kind of special attention that James is talking about here is the kind where we constantly look at something, where we fix, uh, fixate ourselves upon a particular person or a particular people with a sense of, obsessive admiration. And the whole idea behind the word discrimination in verse four is this idea of separating yourself from the dishonorable whilst also aligning yourself with the desirables who you've elevated to sit in the place of honor. You see, these words in these verses tells us a lot about what's going on in James's communities. Members of the communities were judging the value of a person based purely upon their external appearance. And motivated by the thought of how these people might benefit them, they not only gave the rich preferential treatment, but sought to alienate themselves, to distance themselves from people who were just like them, the poor. I think at the heart of favoritism is a question of what do I get out of this? See, favoritism and discrimination are motivated, I think, by the promise of increased status, recognition, or benefit for ourselves. But actually, I think there's more to it. Favoritism also carries another promise too, the promise of maintaining what's comfortable. See, the thing is, once you start to play favorites, 
you've got to maintain that same degree of discrimination, otherwise the whole thing begins to fall apart. And so it's likely that as we're talking about favoritism and discrimination especially, your mind probably goes to extremes like the South African apartheid or the systemic removal of Aboriginal children from their families. And as God's people, we should see these things. We should mourn and grieve them and despise them for what they are. But as we sit and listen to God's word today, it's less likely that we think of favoritism and discrimination as, you know, deliberately not speaking to that person at work because they're just a bit difficult. Or we don't think of it as surrounding yourself with people who only look like and think like you. We don't think of favoritism and discrimination as spreading negative gossip about that person because it makes me and my group feel morally superior to them. You see, even in these smallest of actions of playing favorites, we seek to separate ourselves from others because we stand to gain something, be it greater comfort or influence. And it's these attitudes, these actions that James says that are completely inconsistent with Jesus. See, James is warning God's people. He is warning us as sternly and as strongly as he can that favoritism is a great and significant threat to Jesus' followers, the greatest threat in us looking like and living like him. And this is where we get to the problem of favoritism, why it is so problematic. It's so problematic because it looks nothing like God. James gives us two reasons why Christians shouldn't show favoritism. Verse five points us to the first reason. It says this, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised for those who love him? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, God has done that. This is exactly what's true of James's audience. They were poor materially, and yet God chose them in Christ to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus says this in Mark 8:36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, friends, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, in saving us and in making us heirs of his kingdom, this can't be won or purchased with our own material or moral or spiritual wealth. Favoritism runs in direct opposition to the character and the nature of the good and generous God who has given infinite riches of, um, of his wealth in Jesus for those of us who trust in him. And this is James's first penetrating critique here of favoritism. Favoritism is at its heart, refusing to trust that God is rich enough and good enough to give us his infinite riches in Christ. He goes on in verses six to seven to point out that it's the rich who are exploiting the poor. It's the rich who are manipulating justice against the poor. And even worse than these things, it's the rich who are dishonoring the name and the character and the person of God by dishonoring his image bearers, all for selfish gain. 
Church, we need to hear this. I want to give us a moment to consider our social and our economic location. Our culture and this cultural moment teaches us to identify ourselves as the victims because it gives us the moral high ground. We can even go about showing mercy in some way, but actually be using these actions to serve our own agendas. But I think, truth be told, we're the rich. By global standards, we are very well off, even by national standards. I think we're probably kidding ourselves if we think that we are anywhere near the worst off in our city, generally speaking. And in many ways, in ways beyond what we're even conscious of, we exploit, we dishonor, we pervert justice for the poor and the marginalized by what we think and say and do, just so that we can make some small selfish gain. And when we're doing this, family, what we're doing is blaspheming the God whose image is inscribed upon every face that we ostracize. You see, to show favoritism, to discriminate, is incompatible with faith in Christ. It's an inconsistent double-mindedness. It's what James warns us we need to get rid of. And James' second reason flows on from the first. Come with me to verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. See, Jesus in Matthew 22, he summarizes all of the Old Testament law in this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And we might summarize this by saying that this is the Christian law of love. But earlier in verse four, James describes the the dynamics of favoritism by saying that when you discriminate, you become judges with evil thoughts. See, when we do this, when we show favoritism to some and discriminate against others, we decide, we judge, that we alone are good enough, are wise enough to be the ones who can judge the merit and the worth of another person. But friends, this is something only God has the authority to do. When we do this, we actually take God's seat of honor as the cosmic judge of all people and instead choose to seat ourselves upon that chair of judgment. And our thoughts, well, they become evil because they become self-obsessed. Instead of trusting that God is invested in our flourishing and that his perfect law is given to bring us freedom, favoritism is believing that our way is best. More than this, favoritism and discrimination, they actually separate that which God has joined together, the dignity and worth of his image and the very people that we are judging. See, showing favoritism to James is a failure to live by the law of love. 
So it's not just inconsistent with God's nature, it also directly opposes God's commands for his people to live by. But James, the doctor, isn't quite done. He's got some operating still to do before he gives us the balm of the gospel. See, although we'll often demand complete faithfulness and consistency in others, I think we tend towards excusing inconsistency in ourselves. We make excuses. We um, make things to be smaller than they are. Because really, deep down, don't we know that the human condition is such that it doesn't matter how noble or good our aspirations are, we're inevitably going to fall short of even the best version of ourselves. You see, the deadly byproduct of what James is describing here, the byproduct of our favoritism and our discrimination, seeking that greater honor for ourselves, is that it turns us into lawbreakers. James explains in these verses here that actually it's not God who is actively seeking to condemn us. And God's good and perfect law wasn't given to crush us, but rather it's meant to bring us into freedom. James says that it's our inability to live faithfully to God's perfect law that gives freedom. That's what's problematic for us. You see, in verse 1, James refers to Jesus as the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And it's God who is the cosmic judge, seated in honor over all things in verse 5. It's him who's issued the verdict to choose his people in Christ, despite their material, moral, and spiritual poverty. It's God's royal law in verse 8. God alone is the good and just king. And when we fail to live faithfully by his law of love, we're not offending the law in and of itself. We become lawbreakers who are insulting the good and perfect lawgiver. And so whether it's favoritism or discrimination or any other sort of failure on our part to live by the law of love, we are placed under judgment by our own attitudes and actions before a God who is perfect and complete and just. Now, I realize this is probably the heaviest sermon you've heard from me in my time here, but thankfully, James and the gospel doesn't leave us there. James goes on to, um, to say in verses 12 and 13, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And there are three ways, I think, in which mercy triumphs over judgment. Firstly, as I mentioned before, and as I'm sure you feel, this is simply not a case of, hey, pull up your bootstraps, get your act together, stop showing favoritism, stop discriminating, live by God's law of love, get on with it. Simple truth is, you and I both know, it's just a matter of time before we fall short again. See, what we have to do is read James's words in these two verses in their wider context. See, James has just reminded us in verse five that God, in his goodness and grace, has chosen those of us who were clothed in the rags of material, emotional, moral, spiritual bankruptcy. He has chosen us 
in all of our poverty to become rich in faith, to be seated in honor as royal heirs to his kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. See, first and foremost, family, it is God's mercy that triumphs over judgment. And the good news of Christianity is this, that God, knowing from the beginning that despite being made in his good image, humanity would fail and refuse to honor him as the good and perfect lawgiver, he would and they would instead seek to honor and favor themselves. God chose because he is rich in mercy before the foundations of the earth to send Jesus, his perfect son, to give us that which we cannot earn and we do not deserve. See, family, although Jesus was seated in honor as the prince of heaven, he humbled himself to be born in human flesh for us. He lived the perfect life, showing compassion and mercy to the ones who could give him nothing in return. He lived the life of mercy that we should but can't. And God's greatest act of mercy was at the cross, where Jesus willingly took the totality of all of God's wrath and judgment for sin upon himself. See, at the cross, the fullness of all of God's anger and hatred and wrath for sin, it was all mercilessly poured upon Jesus instead of us. God raised him from the dead for us. His resurrection life has now been given to us by faith. His spirit is given to live in us, to make his life ours, so much so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your filthy rags, but he sees Jesus's merciful life. And not only this, the Holy Spirit who's been given to live in us actually applies the fullness of his mercy to our hearts day by day so that we would willingly and gladly honor him as the good and perfect God that he is. And so the words of the prophet Isaiah ring true. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we're healed. See, family, God's mercy triumphs over judgment because he took up our poverty in Christ and out of the riches of his mercies gave us everything for those who would trust in Jesus. There's a second way in which mercy triumphs over judgment too. As Christians, we um, can't live in ignorance of the reality that there will be a final judgment. James speaks of a judgment here in chapter two, and Jesus repeatedly taught on multiple occasions about a final judgment. Take Matthew 25, for example, the parable of the bags of coins. It illustrates this for us, that there will be a day where we have to give an account for everything that we have loved and thought and said and done. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, we trust that it is his perfect life, his merciful life, his goodness, his righteousness, given in exchange for our self-seeking sinfulness, which guarantees us a place in his kingdom. But on that day, 
we will still stand to give an account. And where we have been faithfully merciful, rather than selfishly discriminating and showing favoritism, God, delighting in his mercy at work in us, will stand there and say, well done, good and faithful servants. There will be a day for us as God's people to give an account for our lives. And so I want to encourage us, family, as Paul would say, run in a way so that we get the prize. And the third way in which I think mercy triumphs over judgment is this. Receiving the infinite mercy of God for us in Christ actually overthrows self-serving favoritism, self-elevating discrimination, and instead enables us to show genuine mercy towards others. See, our selfishness, our sinful bent inward gets replaced with a Christ-like integrity. See, practically speaking, it's not enough for me just to stand up here and say, stop showing favoritism and discrimination. We must dethrone the selfishness, the sinfulness in us and place God and his goodness and his character on its rightful seat of honor in our lives. You see, the extent to which you become gripped with the mercy of God in, towards you and Jesus will be the extent that you will be able to truly and consistently show mercy to those who you find difficult, useless, or even repulsive. Jesus frames what James is saying in chapter 2 in this way in Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And here's what I think Jesus and James are saying. Those who truly grasp their poverty and need of God's mercy, those who trust in God's mercy for them in Christ, they will be brought into the freedom of the kingdom as they show mercy to others. This is not a case, family, of treat others the way you want to be treated. This is a case of treat others the way you have been treated in Christ. And this, family, is the upside-down, back-to-front nature of God's kingdom. This, I think, is the law of love that brings freedom. See, instead of loving and obsessing over yourself and using others as a means to seat yourself in greater honor and comfort, show mercy to those who can't repay you because you love and honor the God who has shown you infinite mercy in Christ. And when you do this, and when we do this together, we will find the freedom and the flourishing of God breaking in here and now to the glory of God the Father and of his Son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, you are rich in mercy. You're abounding in steadfast love. You are slow to anger. And you are so patient with us, your people. Help us to receive your word with gladness today. To not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word as we receive the gospel grace for us in Jesus. I pray for me, I pray for our family, my brothers and sisters here. 
May your mercy toward us in Christ become sweeter and sweeter to us each day so that we might be a people of mercy who would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.